You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, Feisties. Okay. So today's show is another episode that is inspired by posts I have been seeing in our socials and a lot of heartfelt conversation in the community about injuries. We've heard from a large number of you who have been rocked by acute, chronic, and or recurring injuries. One woman posted that she was 48 years old, perimenopausal, and during the past two and a half years has been the most injury prone in her entire life. She has struggled with Achilles tendonitis, a calf tear, hamstring tendinopathy twice, lower back issues, hip flexor issues, quad issues, and, well, all of it has taken a huge mental and emotional toll. Another talked about how she sustained back-to-back injuries, including a broken ankle and a collarbone in separate accidents, which she feels has accelerated and worsened her menopausal symptoms, especially anxiety and hot flashes, which, given all the stress of that, is likely true. Both posts triggered a lot of activity from women just like yourselves who are experiencing similar struggles. And I get it. Injuries can rock us to the core, taking away the activities we love and doing some serious damage to our self-image. So I am thrilled to bring you this conversation with Heidi Armstrong of the Injured Athletes Toolbox. Heidi has more than 10 years of experience dealing with her own injuries following a pretty terrible mountain bike crash. She is also one of the few experts in the world who helps athletes, many of whom are perimenopausal and menopausal, overcome the mental fallout of injury and stop the emotional roller coaster. Heidi had a lot of incredibly helpful advice to share. I know you'll find it insightful and useful. You can find out more about her and her services at InjuredAthletesToolbox.com. Before we get to the show, this is my friendly request to keep on helping us grow the show. Share it with your followers on social media, tell a friend, and open up that app and rate the show. Those three things are enormously helpful to keep us going. Okay, enough of me. On with the show. It's pretty crazy that your and and is am I right in saying that 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 your incident at Seven Springs was sort of that pivotal moment in in your in your life? Like I raced there, it was a twenty four hour mountain bike championship at Seven Springs in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and the course is super fun. It's uh, so fun. Yeah, super fun. I I can't remember. It was I just remember that I kept thinking this is the last time I'm ever going to race 24 hours of anything because I really, I always try to not get that witching hour lap at like 2:33 in the morning. And when I you always, start to hallucinate, always get it. Always yeah, get it. Yeah. But at least I got the sunrise too, and that's the best lap of the day, it right? Is. Because it just you get so much energy. It's just like oh, the sun. It's a new day. But anyway, so what? What happened to you, and am I right in saying that that sort of put you on this path to your injured athlete toolbox life that, you, that you've come on to? Yes, that was the, the first step, or shall we say misstep. Uh, so that was, uh, that was a, a really spectacular crash that led What year to, was it, and why were you there? 
so I was there in 99 and okay. it was for, it was a national championship series race. So I was racing yes. uh, and it was, um, they had a, a short course and then they had a cross country race. So I was doing both of those and I had a really spectacular crash and uh, it was like ba basically a yard sale. So I was, uh, we had, we had done a bunch of climbing in the first part of the course and it was pretty wet and damp and mm -hmm. there were a lot of slick roots and rocks. And uh, so I had to pay really close attention to what I was doing and my balance and uh, where I was looking, et cetera. And so once that part ended, I let my guard down a bit and yep. we went around the top of the mountain and it was really wide open. It was clearly a ski run during the winter mm -hmm. and it was a really wide open. And then there was a really gentle downhill. And so I started to check out just a little bit, like ju just a very little bit, let my guard mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. And there was this really wide sweeping turn to the left. And then there was a sign with three arrows down, oh, yep, uh, yep. which, which, which means uh, danger, those, danger, danger. <laughs> yes. For those people who don't mountain bike, that means you should probably get off your bike unless you're a, a trials rider. And nobody and so, had dropper posts or anything at that time. Like those oh, bikes were not no. equipped for those oh, kind oh, of downhills. No. <laughs> no, no. And this was like, the front forks were like pogo sticks. I mean, yeah, this no, was they, just... the bikes were not. I'm surprised I'm still alive, quite frankly. Yeah, when I look exactly. at the bikes I used so, to race on, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, this was this was back in the day where there were still people that had fully rigid bikes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, My not at that level, but lots of people had them. Yeah. So I come around this corner, and there's this three arrows down. But not only that, there was a skull and crossbones on it, and I thought. How, how could it be that bad based on what I just came from? And, you know, I was a really skilled rider. So I thought I'll just, I'll just try to ride it out. And the, the, the corner tightened up, like it was a bit, it was a decreasing radius turn. And so we came around the corner and the world just dropped out from underneath me. I mean, oh, it went I just straight got goosebumps. down this hill and which would be fine, except for the hill was just littered with baby heads. Uh, which those are small <laughs> rocks for people who don't know. Right. So these are the size of these baby are rocks. <laughs> exactly. About the size of a baby head. And uh and this was also probably part of a ski run. And so after the snow receded in the winter, it left all this really fine silt behind. Uh and at the top of the hill, I thought, holy shit. Okay. <laughs> and in this split second, I had to make a decision. Do I do I stop? Like, do I just grab two fistfuls, fistfuls of brake? And, and at which point I'd probably roll down the entire hill. And I thought that, that just really doesn't sound fun. Or should I just basically sit on my rear wheel and try to ride this out? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, and, and, and use as little brake as possible. So I thought, okay, I'm going to ride it out. So I got to the very bottom of the hill and I thought it was out of the woods, except there was basically a sand pit at the bottom of the hill. Oh, boy. And so I had all this momentum from coming down and then ended up basically going from, I don't know, 30, 40 miles an hour to nothing in the sand pit. 
so then it was just a yard sale. My body went one way, my bike went another way, and I knew I'd hurt my knee, but I just uh, rocked back and forth on the side of the trail for a while and then picked myself up and, and you know, finished, right? Um, I finished Adrenaline's riding. a good drug, too. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what we do. Um, I, I have another even more extreme, how did you do that when you were injured story about my second injury? But anyway... Um, finished the race or finished the the pre-ride and then was in a lot of pain the next day. But, you know, of course I traveled all the way there. So what am I going to do? I, I race. So um, then after that, it was just uh, back and forth for a year trying to figure out what was going on with my knee. And I finally was able to get a proper diagnosis. Uh, I had really bad osteochondral damage, damage, so that means that the the cartilage and some of the bone on the back of my kneecap had fallen off. So I had these, you know, osteochondral lesions on the back of my kneecap, and ended up having surgery. But the, it, it, having a couple of surgeries, and it ended up being about a four and a half year recovery. But the the bigger part of all this is that injury caused me to completely lose my identity and my self-worth and my my value and my social network and it, I, I basically lost myself like my entire being and uh i became really angry i'm a, a very even tempered person very like i have the patience of a dog and uh, and I became so angry. I was just angry all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, my best friend, Christine, uh, she's also my stunt double. Uh, she had an intervention with me one day, and it was it's actually a pretty funny story. I was uh, it was it was two thousand. So uh, I was doing what what anybody would do in this situation, which was sitting on the floor, cleaning my cassette tape collection. Um, you're not allowed to ask me why I had one in the year 2000. And no, I'm not a hoarder. <laughs> I was sitting on the floor cleaning it and I should have been with my leg up. And my leg was about the size of a cantaloupe. My knee was. And Christine came home from work and she walked in the door and she goes, what the bloody hell are you doing? And by the way, Christine's a physical therapist. Mm. And I said, I'm cleaning the cassette tapes. And she goes, oh, okay, well, I'm going to go in my room for a little while. And when I come out, we're going to have a talk. And I said, okay. And she came out and she sat in front of me and she looked me straight in the eyes. And I had this pile of paper towels and a thing of Windex. I mean, it was, it was a sad sight. And she, she looked at me and she said, do you see all this? And she pointed to my mess on the floor. And I said, yeah. And she said, this is not going to work anymore. You need help. And the first thing that anybody would do in that situation reflexively is get angry or defensive. And I just took a few deep breaths and I, I don't know what what inside of me made me do that, but it was very powerful and a, a pivot point in my life. And I thought, okay, that took a lot of guts for her to say that to me because she had no idea how I was going to react. And I could have reacted consistently with all my other behavior, which was angry. Uh, but she said something because she saw 
behavior that I couldn't see myself. And so I, I call that when we're stuck in the bottle, we can't read the label. And right. she was my label reader. And then the other thing I thought was, it takes a lot of love to say that to somebody, just unconditional, deep, deep love. And so I, the next step I took was I called a psychotherapist and I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know that anything was wrong. I just thought this is, I guess the next obvious step. And I started going to therapy and that was very, very helpful. And I started to practice creativity. And this was a spawn of, of my physical therapist having another intervention with me, which is you've got to start using your brain in other ways. You must. And so I got into photography. So my, I'm, I'm a chemist. I'm a, I'm a scientist. And so he was appealing to that part of my brain, yet it was also a creative outlet. And so I started doing photography and I realized when I was behind the camera that I didn't really have pain and I didn't feel like I had lost my identity and I felt like I had goals and I, uh, I felt this, this tremendous unburdening from my injury. And so I kept doing that and I found other things that I could do to effectively take all of the intensity and the focus and the drive that I had for training and racing. And I just turned it toward turning my mind around and training my brain. Mm -hmm. And after about six months, my surgeon called me and he said, Hey, Heidi, I have this patient who's an injured athlete and he doesn't necessarily need to see a psychotherapist at this point, but he feels like he's the only one on earth dealing with what he's going through. And can, can he call you? And, and I said, yeah, sure. Just send him my information. I'm happy to help. And so he was the first person with whom I worked. And then over the years, my psychotherapist, my PT, my surgeon, and other people that heard about me would call me and say the same exact thing. And I believe when we learn, we should teach. And so mm-hmm. it was an honor and a privilege to be able to teach other athletes the things that I had learned. And so that was, you know, that was the beginning of it. I did that for 10 years until I had my second injury, which is a whole, a whole other saga and story, um, which I'm happy to, to get into that too, if, if you'd like, but, uh, the, I learned how to do it the right way by completely screwing up and doing it wrong the first time. Yeah. I think that if we never get lost, we can't ever be found. And that was, that was the journey that I was on the first time is I got completely lost so that I could then be found. So did you end up, I want to get to, I want to get to the second injury and then I want to sort of get into like what a lot of what we're hearing from our women at the feisty menopause. You know, I sent you some of those posts. Um, Yes. you resolved the knee injury, however, though. Like, when did, like, you were able to ride again? Yeah, I was able to get back to racing. But okay. when, it, it was four and a half years. And that mm-hmm. was four and a half years of complete and total dedication to not only my PT, but exploring all, all, the, all the demons that I had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I made it back to racing. But by that point, I had decided that I 
that endurance racing suited me more. So I started mm-hmm. doing more of that and uh, less of the, the shorter, more intense cross country. Right. So racing. you went to Leadville, you went to the longer, to the longer mm-hmm. races, right? Yeah. And then you got injured again. At some and point. then I got injured again. <laughs> yeah. And um, was that process any different? It was a lot different. It was a lot different. So that the second injury was that happened in West Yellowstone in Montana, and I did it uh, cross country ski racing. So it was the equivalent of a Nordic ski racing bike pile up. Like it was just skis and people all over the place. And uh, I had I fractured my knee but I didn't know it. And this was the, um, this was the story I alluded to earlier. I, I had to walk about two and a half kilometers. And what I later found was a, a badly broken knee and a torn ligament. And um, you talk about a- adrenaline, you know, mm-hmm. killing the pain and, and helping you do superhuman things. But that injury led me down a completely different path because I had so many complications with, with the injury itself. But when I got back to Austin, uh, actually, actually Carrie picked me up at the airport and I ended mm-hmm. up staying with her for a while. That's uh, our show because, producer. <laughs> yeah. So I, I couldn't do anything. I mean, I, I couldn't shower. Carrie was helping me shower. That was really hilarious, but I, I stayed with her for a while. And then I went over to Christine's house and Christine sat next to me one day and she said, Heidi, I'm really worried about you. And I said, why? And she said, well, I mean, other than the obvious that you're broken, uh, I'm worried that you're going to go down the same path that you went down after your first injury. And I said, oh, no. I said, no, don't, don't worry about that. I said, there are going to be bumps in the road to be sure. And I said, but as far as losing my identity, I, I, I have worked on myself so much and learned so much from that first injury that I, I won't go down the same road. <clears throat> and she said, you're, you're so much more than a mountain bike racer and an incredible athlete. You know, you, you have all of these, these other wonderful attributes. You're a great friend. You're a wonderful listener. You're a safe place to always turn for, for any problem. Uh, you're incredibly creative. And she said, just, just remember that. And I said, I, I will. And that was a really good reminder, but also an assurance to her and um, probably a big relief <laughs> that I wasn't going to turn into this rageful, angry person that I did the first time. It's so hard though, right? Like, you know, I sent you these they're long too. These posts I, I sent you, like the, the you know, they apologize in advance, like sorry, mm-hmm. long posts. And you know, it's it's either cro- like sort of your situation, like it's 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 a series of acute injuries, like a, you know, a couple of crashes and mm-hmm. and shattered collarbones, or it's that other thing, the nagging, the hamstring that won't go away, the Achilles mm-hmm. that leads to another thing that leads to another thing, and. The it is, and I completely understand because, like, anytime something happens, I'm like, oh my god, is that the end? Is that the end? I mean, that that's the first place my head will go. Like, oh, am I never going to X, Y, and Z again? Am I never going to? And all the terrible places that takes you, because as you alluded, like, 
You try not to make it your identity, but it kind of is. And it definitely is your community. And it's, it's definitely how you occupy a whole lot of your time and your mental space. So where, I mean, can you, can you talk a little bit about that, that mental minefield that, that these injuries are for women? And, and frankly, like, how this applies to menopausal women, because as our hormones change and as we age, these things, you know, we, we will, they're more likely to come up. They, they are. And I work with a lot of women who are between 35 and 70 years old. And uh, yeah. the ones that are going through perimenopause and menopause describe it to me as one continuous long injury. Ouch. And, and so, because the, (laughs) right. So that the body declines over time. And so the same sequela happens emotionally, whether it's an acute injury, a broken bone or accumulated overuse injuries, like your tendonitis, tendinosis, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff, or whether it's aging or if it's, a disease process like Mm. cancer or something that's autoimmune. Mm -hmm. All of the experiences that people have are exactly the same. So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, And the reason it's so hard, I liken it to, I like an injury to a mountain bike stage race of indeterminate length that you're forced to participate in with zero training while riding a Huffy. Wow. And that's not fun. No. I mean, it is just not fun. <laughs> and so... And it's really uh, hard. <laughs> it, it, it is. And, and furthermore, you're forced to do it with zero training. And so this, this thing happens and we have no training or, or really no guidance out there uh, to, to tell us what to do when we're injured to take care of the mental and emotional fallout. Because... Um, what, what I'm noticing on, on our group page is there are a lot of posts about the physical side of injury and, and a little bit about the mental and emotional fallout. And then subsequently, most of the responses address the physical part of injury. However, the worst injury is the one that we can't see. And it that is the injury that has to be dealt with. And so... Um, so that that's part of the difficulty that the other part of it, like you said, is, is a loss of identity. Um, we, we so strongly identify as athletes and for the people in this group, you know, they, they didn't wake up last week and start exercising. Our group is generally full of people who have been lifelong athletes and they know their bodies really well and their bodies are changing. Um, and then that, subsequently creates a loss of control, right? So we have a loss of identity, a loss of control. Terrible and that all leads to, <laughs> right. Like yeah. no athlete wants that. That's everybody's nightmare. Um, that leads to frustration, impatience. I was angry. Some people get sad. Uh, and then it leads to comparison, which is the source of all kinds of grief and suffering. And then disconnection, as you were saying, like, disconnection from your your teammates and your training buddies and your social network and for some people like me your chosen family uh, and then disconnection from 
ourselves and our own body, this, this tool that we use to process stress, to connect with life, to connect with other people, to get out in nature, all of a sudden it's broken and it doesn't do what we want it to do. And then that leads to us starting to tell ourselves stories. Like you're saying, you know, catastrophizing, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So like we no longer have the means to exercise or to work out hard or uh, keep the perimenopausal and menopausal weight off or ameliorate stress or just plain old get the let out, right? So then, then that leads to more stories. Like what I see a lot is people saying, you know, nobody wants to be around me when I'm injured. Like I'm, I'm evil when I'm injured. Mm-hmm. And it just, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way if we can flip the script and, and learn how to work with it instead of working against it. My Lord, there's a lot to unpack here. Like how, <laughs> I mean, how do you even, how do you even begin? Because it, that, that catastrophic thinking road, and I am, I have a pro card in catastrophic thinking. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, I did too. I'm, I'm in recovery. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good idea. I hope to find that space. But, but you know, and, and it's, it is like you reach this point where you're like, are, and I, I see it in our group, are my best days behind me? Is this, you know, all this stuff? And I think you have to define what that, what all of that means to you and what all of this means to you, right? Like, well, what can you, can you, can you put us on a little bit of a path to absolutely this, this, this place that you seem to have found because it looks lovely. <laughs> it, looks like, <laughs> it looks like a good place to be. I mean, there are waves here, I promise you, but <laughs> but there are also ways to grab a surf, surfboard and get on the waves. Yeah, and have some fun rather than getting clobbered by them. And I think that the two overarching guiding principles are to be relentlessly inquisitive and aggressively curious. And if we can start there and then understand some things about our nervous system and how our nervous system works, that can begin to flip the script and rearrange all the furniture in our head. Okay. Uh, So let's think of our lives as, as being a tree. Okay. Right? Like a big old gnarly hundred, 200, 300 year old oak tree like we, we have here in central Texas. Those trees survive huge limbs breaking off. They survive hurricanes. They survive, I mean, they've survived hundreds of years. Uh, and as athletes, especially those of us that have been athletes our whole lives, we have carefully pruned our tree so that the athlete branch is able to thrive and grow and get more leaves and feed the tree. But if that branch, for some reason, aging, disease, injury, if it begins to to die or not feed the tree anymore we have the option to prune the tree and allow other branches to grow. Mm. And so we don't have to let the tree die. Okay. So how do you do that? Uh, I think it's, it's really important for athletes to understand why, like, you know, why am I doing this training program? What, what's going on with my body? You know, why am I doing this? Right. So 
this is a, a, a drastic oversimplification, but it, it needs to be said. Our, our nervous system is divided into two sections. So we have the parasympathetic nervous mm-hmm. system, which is uh, like the, the brake pedal of our nervous system. And that helps to calm us down. And it controls involuntary things like digest, digestion, heart rate, respiratory rate, things like that. And then we have the sympathetic nervous system, which is, oh, the hungry tigers are chasing me. You know, how, how do I stay alive? So people will describe an increased heart rate, sweaty palms, you know, headache, anger, irritability, worry, anxiety, all that stuff. And so if we can understand that when we get stressed out and when we catastrophize, that's our sympathetic nervous system. And just like on a trail that you hike or mountain bike on, the more that you ride on that trail or the more that you engage your sympathetic nervous system, the deeper the rut gets. And so that becomes your default, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you catastrophize, you get concerned, you get worried, you get anxious. And the more you do that, the more you focus on that, the deeper that rut becomes. And so the, the key to how to get out of this sympathetic rut is what I call it, mm-hmm. is to begin to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. And I'll explain how to do that in a moment. It's worth saying that every single person listening right now has the focus, the drive, the determination, and everything that I have inside of me is inside of all of us. We just have to harness it and we just have to choose to show up and start. And it's like on a mountain bike adventure or hiking adventure, when you start bushwhacking and you get cut up by all the whatever that's growing there. I mean, in Texas, it's thorns. So you just, you get all cut up and bloody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, brutal, right? So when you start engaging your parasympathetic nervous system and training it, and that's, that's a, that's a key, like you are training your brain. Uh, And, and when we fail to do that, when we're injured, you know, what, what do we talk about all the time? Like, what does what Stacey Sims talk about? Cortisol, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we want to try to to reduce and eliminate that as much as possible. And if we, are, if we are in a sympathetic rut, that is just a continuous release of cortisol in our system. And the way that you think actually can delay and slow down healing. Right. And so that's a lot of why this is important, right? So... Because in this time of life, our cortisol is already kind of running away with us. Exactly. Exactly. So would it help if I go through some of the the techniques and things that that we can do? Yeah, no, I think think women, I think our, our listeners would really, really like to hear that because what I see is this is deep ruts. It's the same kind of ruts that I ride in, you know, Mm -hmm. just like a lot of worry, a lot of stress that I used to be a sub three hour marathoner. I used to be this, I want to be at Kona again. Mm -hmm. I want all these things. And I don't see anybody taking another path in any of these threads, you know I mean? Like you said, a lot of it is 
oh, you know, drink your milk or do you like just do stuff to like heal whatever bones and that, but there's not, a, I see nothing about the stuff that you're talking about that seems mm-hmm. really, really important. Right. And it's important to ask ourselves if we're actually healing or forcing ourselves to forget. And a lot of people are just that? forcing themselves to forget. I don't understand uh, what you mean. Say again. I, I didn't follow oh, like what you so, mean by forcing yourself to forget. Yeah. So uh, if you're chasing physical symptoms and physical manifestations of an injury, in other words, how do I fix this and that? And, mm-hmm. you know, what do I do for, for my, my broken ankle? I mean, these things are important, mm-hmm. but athletes can turn their, their propensity to be relentless into chasing physical symptoms and trying to heal physically. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean by forcing yourself to forget. That's, uh, that's something that is tangible and controllable and, and e- much easier to look at than the actual mental and emotional healing. Right. And so if you're chasing physical symptoms and you're only focusing on the actual physical injury and not the mental and emotional injury, you're probably forcing yourself to forget. Okay, so so let's 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 do this because I think this would help me, and there I think would help the people that we're talking to here, like wrap our heads around this whole process. Okay, I am going to go out. I'm out on a trail run. I've been training. Everything is going spectacularly well. I've got something that I have my eye on, like a trail race, and I suddenly I don't know how I overturn my ankle, pop, and the cascade starts, mm-hmm. like everything is destroyed, right? All that training gone down the drain. My best days are behind me. It's over. Oh my God, what do I have to do? I start Googling everything I need to do for a sprained ankle. Like, like help me, like, like help me put, put me on a better path where I'm not just so hyper-focused on all these things that, that we get hyper-focused on. Yes. That's a very good question. So the first thing we need to do, uh, a little bit contrary to what I just said is, is actually focus on the physical stuff. I mean, if we have an acute injury mm-hmm. uh, or something that's nagging, we need to get a problem. Oh, my hamstring pipes up again. Yes. Like something uh, I thought was resolved. Oh my God, here it is again. I mean, yeah, right. any of those so, things. Yeah. So that, that a proper diagnosis is the foundation for, for all of this. Right. Don't um, doctor Google it. Is that what you're saying? Right. No, no HTTPMD, like not, not allowed. Um, no, <laughs> I've never heard that one. <laughs> no, no, no forums. Uh, because if, if people are better and they're out living, they're probably not posting on a forum. So um, the first step would be to get a proper diagnosis by mm-hmm. putting together a really good care team so that you can learn about what's going on, but you are not solely responsible for the medical part of this. So okay. that's not just a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician for some of the nagging stuff that comes up or uh, an orthopedic surgeon for some of the more acute things. Mm-hmm. That's, that's also looking at those providers and asking yourself, are, are they going to stick with me through this whole thing? 
So you want to be able to say to yourself that your team is not going to give up on you if you don't give up on yourself. If they're, if they're blowing you off, if they're waiting to go to the next appointment, if they're cutting you off, if they're not listening to you, go on to the next person. So the first step, as I said, is, is finding a proper care team. A good PT is so, so important. And I recommend a PT that is either SCS or OCS. So that's an orthopedic certified specialist or sport certified specialist. And someone who is movement-based, so not someone who's going to massage and ultrasound you, but someone who's going to teach you how to move again properly. So that's the first step. And that's, that's actually the easiest part. Yep. Okay, so the, the next part is where things get really difficult because that's the most difficult part of the injury. It's the one you can't see, right? So there's a lot of things that people can do and InjuredAthletesToolbox.com is full of blogs based on just about every challenge that we face as injured athletes and then what to do about the challenges. So I break it down and then I talk about these are the things you can do to help yourself in this situation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm going to distill my answer to your question in terms of the, the mental part of this down to a few steps. And if you're not driving and listening, grab a pen and I would say, (laughs) write these things down. And the most successful injured athletes employ this type of mental training with the same focus and intensity as their physical training. And then through that, they gain resilience, they gain strength, they gain empathy, and they gain a sense that I am more than just an athlete. So this process is also feeding those other branches of the tree. Right. So, so again, guiding principle is to be relentlessly inquisitive and aggressively curious. So these are just a few things that I think are very helpful and that some of these are things that my clients just dreamed up themselves and shared with me. And I thought that's brilliant. So we tell ourselves a lot of stories once we get injured. So the catastrophizing, um, you know, the, the can'ts, the shoulds, the coulds, all that kind of stuff. And so in order to stop the storytelling, we have to change our words and we have to, we have to be able to process and get rid of the stories. And so take a, take a paper bag from the grocery store and a Sharpie and go light yourself a fire in the backyard and write down, and you have to, you have to like give yourself the straight dope, like write down all of the stories you're telling yourself in your head. I'm never going to run again. My best days are behind me. I'm fat. Uh, I, I can't move like I used to. Any and every story you're telling yourself, I'm, I'm worthless. And write it down. Rip a piece of the bag off. Write down your story. Throw it in the fire and burn it. And there's something very healing about the act of writing and the the kinesthetics of it and then throwing it in a fire and getting rid of it. And for, for people who are interested in reading more and are curious, uh, a lot of this is based on the work of James Pennebacher. So he's done a lot of research on uh, therapeutic writing. So the other thing that we need to understand with this exercise is that uh, 
Maya Angelou says that words are things and that we have to be careful with the words that we use. And someday we'll be able to measure the power of words. And they get on your walls and your wallpaper and your rugs and your upholstery and your clothes and finally into you. So we have to be able to change the words that we use. And this is the first step. I have goosebumps again. The next thing, so this is number two, is Mm. help somebody else Mm. or accept help. Helping someone else helps heal us. And uh, when I was going through my second injury, uh, I, the skiing injury, I had eight surgeries and spent four and a half years on crutches. And She's since gone to doggy heaven, but I was very privileged to have a uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback mix that lived to be about 15 and a half years old. And she was, she was a therapy dog. And even when I was injured on crutches, I took her to the hospitals to see patients. Mm -hmm. And over the course of 14 and a half years, we made almost a thousand visits together. And a lot of them were when I was injured because Hearing other people's stories and understanding that I am not the only one on this earth suffering gave me tremendous perspective and grounding. And so maybe that's not somebody's means of of helping, but we all have somebody in our life that we know needs help, you know, whether, especially now, um, you know, whether it's an elderly neighbor or a friend or uh, we all know somebody. So, so give back to somebody else and it will heal you. We get back so much more than we give when we help somebody else. And then the other part of this is to accept help. And athletes are horrible at accepting help. We want to just plow through and do it ourselves, but we, we are wired to be connected and to have a tribe and to need each other. And so we need to accept help. And we, when we're injured, we, you know, we all think, Oh, I, I wish somebody could run an errand for me or I, I, you know, my house is kind of a mess. Like maybe I could have somebody help me clean a room. And so I have people keep a running list of all the things that they wish that they could do. uh, Errand wise, you know, food, cooking wise, all that kind of stuff. And then when somebody calls and says, I'm here, what can I do to help? Instead of saying, oh, I'm fine. I don't need anything. Look at the list and say, you know what? Um, It's kind of a gnarly job, but my bathroom really needs to be cleaned. Um, I'll, you know, I'll open a bottle of Prosecco, you know, and I'll (laughs) I'll sit there and keep you company while you scrub my toilet. (laughs) Um, And that it's so important because we, one of my mother's sister friends, when I was going through my second injury and I was lying on the sofa in a constant passive motion machine, bending my leg, she came over and and brought probably a week's worth of food. And she sat down next to me and she said, you're angry. And I said, I'm angry. And I said, I don't want help. I don't, I don't want, I don't want it. I just, I'm angry. And she said, so you enjoy helping your friends, right? And I said, well, yeah, of course I do. I I love helping my friends. And she said, well, your friends love helping you too. So stop stealing their joy. And, and, and that's all it took. 
That's mm-hmm. all it took for me to shift my, my perspective on accepting help. And if, if what Linda said isn't enough to shift people's minds, there is a, a loneliness researcher named John Cassiopo. And he's determined that being lonely is as stressful as a physical attack. And so we, we have to give and get help in order to be connected and in order to not be lonely. So that's my number two. Uh, number three is to learn something new, but do it in a class. And that solves some of the loneliness issue. And then it also solves the issue of feeling like we don't have goals when we're injured anymore. There's not a, there's not a race to train for. There's not, you know, next week's training or whatever. It's just, yep. Um, here, hold down the sofa again, <laughs> watching Netflix. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's we, a void. Mm hmm. It's a huge void. And so learning something new in a class creates some community. It creates goals. It creates some accountability and, the 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 most resistance people have is right at the very beginning because an athlete doesn't want to start all over doing something new right but i tell people just chill out and embrace the suck you know <laughs> you 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 started your sport as a beginner and you can be a beginner at other things and your learning quest will morph into, like I said, new goals, new skills, proficiencies, a new community. Uh, a, a good example of this is I, I had always wanted to take ballet and a mountain biker taking ballet, right? <laughs> so at 45, my knee was finally to a place where I thought, oh, hell, I'm going to sign up for ballet. And I did. And it was amazing. Hmm. And ballet really brought me back into my body and it helped give me body awareness that I didn't have before and that I had, I didn't have when I was fit and I completely lost when I was injured and it made me a better mountain biker. Um, I have a, a tennis player with whom I'm working with right now and she <laughs> in stereo for about the last two years of her life has had her coach her PT, and then finally me say to her, you need to take up swimming. And I explained to her why. I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons in terms of uh, getting a, an aerobic workout, et cetera. And she just said, I don't want to start over. I don't want to be bad at something. I don't want to be a beginner. And I said, you got to embrace the suck, sister. Go. And she's taken three swimming lessons, and she's completely in love with it. So learn something new in a class. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fourth thing is one of the reasons why it's so stressful to be injured and be still is because for a lot of us, our sport is a means to numb things from the past. Um, you know, Dr. Pam Peak, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's a, a means to to numb trauma or bad stuff that's going on in the house or just regular old life stress that we all have. So it becomes your demons. Pri- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It becomes our primary coping tool. And we, we have to have 
the department of redundancy department going on with our coping tools. Like we can't just have one, we have to have many. Uh, and so if, if somebody is, I, I call it the backup alarm, like you're sitting on the couch, you've been injured, you know, your ankles wrapped, it's elevated, you're on <laughs> ice. And all of a sudden you hear like the UPS backup alarm and you're sitting there going, what is that? And then all of a sudden, all of your crap from the past is suddenly upon you, suffocating you, and it's the worst feeling. And this is, this is the one thing that leads people back to their sport before they're ready to go back. Because it's, it, they don't want to deal with the demons from the past. And so um, where I'm going with all of this, number four is go to therapy. Uh, I would say about 90% of the athletes with whom I've worked over the last 20 years also see a psychotherapist. It's so important. And uh, I recommend EMDR therapy. And I have a blog on my website about it that's really, really helpful. And then there's another form of, of therapy called internal family systems. And I like these two modalities because it's not typical talk therapy where an athlete is sitting on the couch going, Oh, woe is me. You know, my mom sucked and you know, this happened to me. It's, I mean, this, both of these types of therapy, just they very gently, but they go, they go right to the heart of things. So there's, there's no wasting time. Um, Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I believe that taking care of ourselves mentally and emotionally is a form of community service Hmm. because we heal and then we can show up and be more effective people for everybody else around us. So it changes the dynamics of all of our relationships. If we can heal ourselves. Uh, Number five is find an injury friendly way to move. And then Mm -hmm. again, embrace the suck in the learning process. So this will often happen with a physical therapist, a consultation with a physical therapist. And there is always a way to move when we're injured, even if it means sitting on the floor and doing yoga. So whatever it is that, that your form of movement will be, find it. And then be grateful that you can do it. Uh, for emergencies, uh, you know, like a a crisis of just, oh my gosh, anxiety, or, you know, nobody can stand to be around me right now. And they want to send me off on an island by myself. And you just cannot calm yourself down. Get in a cold shower and set the shower to as cold as it will go. Get in until you shiver. And once you stop shivering, get out wrap yourself in a blanket and lie down. And once the shivering stops, the parasympathetic nervous system kicks on. And it's, it's honestly like a drug. Uh, so you get a release of uh, oxytocin, of serotonin, of dopamine, and allow yourself just to sit there and, and, and rest for a while after the cold shower. But the shivering is the key part. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people say like, oh, I'm not going to do that. I hate cold water. And that, 
honestly, that's part of the fun of it. It's, it's something that's um, weird and, and, you know, a little bit scary to people, but it's so effective to just stop the freight train. Yeah, no, I've, I've done that actually plunging into cold water and the, the come down, the calm down is profound. It is amazing. It is. Yeah. 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 So my, uh, I've, I've taken up cold water swimming. So I swim, I swim in college. I quit. I started racing bikes. And then, uh, right after my first surgery at the Sedman clinic in Vail, which was the first of six there. And, uh, I was at a, at a pool at university of Texas doing some pool therapy. And my husband said, why don't you go swim a little bit? And I looked at him and I said, are you smoking crack? I gave this sport up 18 years ago. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, fine, whatever. And so I started swimming. I grabbed a pool buoy and I started swimming. And within 50 yards, I thought, oh my gosh, I don't have a disability in the water. Oh, I can't so even begin great. to walk, but I can swim. Yeah. And so then I thought, okay, I need to make this my own thing, right? I don't want to swim in where there's lane lines. So I started cold right. water swimming where um, one of my friends said to me, uh, we put the high in hypothermia and it is so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> so I have two more. Um, okay, please. Read. So I have three three books that are essential reading for injured athletes. Mm -hmm. The first one is when things fall apart by Pima Chodron. The next one is the surrender experiment first, and then the untethered soul second by Michael mm -hmm. Singer. Um, and then man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. Hmm. So those are four books. Sorry. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. Just making sure we get the that same right. author. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yep. Four books, yeah. Right. Um, and then my last one is Nature, Vitamin D, and Dig in the Dirt. So get yourself outside. Even if, even if you, you're on crutches, you can't walk anywhere, put a chair in the yard and just sit there for 15 minutes and take your shoes off and put your feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. And even if it's cold, get out there, you know, adopt the, the Norwegian saying of there there's no bad weather only bad clothes right mm -hmm. just just mm -hmm. get get yourself outside and then the next step is to make a list of all of what your tools are going to be and i mentioned there's tons of them on my website so pick what works for you and make a list of them because when you're spiraling you want something to look at and go okay I'm going to do two things off of my list. I'm going to do this and this and then go do them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good advice, especially for goal-oriented, task-oriented people. Mm -hmm. uh, this was so great. I, I actually almost started crying and I'm not even really Aww. sure why. <laughs> so Aww. I just, yeah, it's just very... Um, yeah, I think I'm going to start crying. It, it's just, it's very... It does really touch something... I think in us that uh, that drives us and that it does cause this avalanche of catastrophic thinking when mm -hmm. something goes something goes off our course that takes us off the course that we're so entrenched entrenched in. So I think I think before I let you go, I'd like to hear a little bit about your athletic life now. Like what what 
interests you, what drives you, like how, like what motivates you, what your goals look like? Like how, how has your process of all of this journey mm-hmm. that you just talked me through changed your athletic self? It's like night and day, and you might make me cry now. Okay, we'll just cry together, and everyone can okay. cry in their cars. <laughs> All right. Uh, I am so grateful that I can walk. And every day that I wake up in the morning and put my feet on the ground, I am so grateful that I can walk. And I have a condition called arthrofibrosis in my knee. Um, it's a, a global scarring condition. It's very rare. And most people that have this can barely walk. And so I have a profound gratitude. And I, I mean this every day for my, my entire care team because it was this tremendous team effort. And for my husband, Dan, who uh, had to do everything around the house for four and a half years, close to five years. And all of the people that helped me, all of my friends, uh, I don't really have family. And so it's all chosen family. It's all friends who just loved and loved and loved us unconditionally. And so that's where it all starts for me. Uh, The past 10 years has been a glacially slow process of learning how to walk again about four or five times. And then walking this fine line of having goals and having a direction and also maintaining motivation in the presence of being really flexible and gentle with my body about those goals. And if I don't achieve them to just readjust and to reframe the readjustment as compassion for myself and actually being really smart about my recovery. Cause in my situation, if I didn't readjust, it was another date with the operating room table. Like that's, that's where I was going. And so I have, I have a very unforgiving condition. And so I first learned how to walk. Um, So over the course of the last 10 years, I've gotten to the point where I can hike for about maybe three hours or so. Nothing crazy steep. Uh, I probably couldn't climb a mountain, but if I'm outside for five minutes, I'm grateful. Uh, So the the bar by which I, I judge what I can do has completely changed because of all of what I've just said. Um, I can, this spring, I actually was able to ride 60 really hilly miles. So about like a thousand feet of climbing every 10 miles. So pretty, pretty hilly. Uh, And, and have some power and have some speed and, and have, you know, moments where I felt like my old snappy self, but also appreciating where I was. Uh, I can... I can stand now for about an hour and a half or maybe two hours. And up until 2017, I could stand for about five minutes. Wow. Yeah. And actually sitting in a chair, standing and sitting in a chair are the two most difficult things. And I know you asked about my athletic life and sitting in a chair is not athletic. However, it is a huge milestone that I can sit in a chair for a couple of hours and get up and walk afterwards. So 
That's great. Yeah. And then I, uh, I refocused my intensity and my, uh, my, my love of aerobic exercise and love of being outside and being in nature. I pivoted that over to swimming and swim specifically open water swimming. And then even more specifically cold open water <laughs> swimming. And so I've done a couple of 10 K races and I won. How that cold was, is cold? Tell me how cold cold is. Uh, uh low to mid sixties. Ooh, that's cold. That yeah. is very cold. Yes. But typically the water I swim in is about 68, 69 degrees, but in the winter it can be a little colder, but I will, I will swim in weather. In, <laughs> so I have a rule. It's, I call it the rule of 100. So if the, if the air temperature and the water temperature equal about 100, then I'll swim. <laughs> but I, <Okay. laughs> <laughs> I, I'll swim when it's uh, at my, my local pool, Barton Springs is a spring fed pool. And I'll swim there when it's so cold that I get out and my swimsuit freezes. But the water feels like a bathtub. <laughs> Right, it's right, beautiful, relatively. but um, I've gotten up to swimming 11 miles. So I've done an 11 miler, couple of those 10 miles. So, uh, so I channel, I channel things that way now, my, my intensity. And then uh, I also, as I mentioned, started ballet and right. I'll tell you what ballerinas are amazing athletes. Holy moly. <laughs> so that's what I do now. It has been a real joy talking to you. Can I tell it's you, been like, an I, honor? Yeah, this has been. I this is going to help a lot of people. I think this has certainly helped me. Um, thank you, thank you for your time. And You're welcome. Yeah, we'll we'll put we'll put your story in the show notes and how people can find you at the Athletes Toolbox. But Heidi, thanks so much. Really Thank you, Celine. It's been a, a real honor and a pleasure. I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you. Okay, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Dr. Christy Greenleaf, whose primary research focus is on the psychosocial aspects of weight, physical activity, body image, and disordered eating. We had a long, sometimes heavy, discussion about body image and eating disorders in menopausal women. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I know you will too. So until next week, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty.